Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. When you didn't come back, I naturally assumed that Lisa Wong or someone else had killed you. Oh, and for the record, letting someone think that someone they love is dead when they're not is quite cruel. I mourned you for three months. And in the third month of mourning you, I tracked you down. Now, I wasn't trying to track you down. I was trying to track down the fucking assholes who I thought killed you. So I find you. And what do I find? Not only are you not dead, you're getting married to some fucking jerk, and you're pregnant. I overreacted. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Kill Bill, Volume 2. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from the gravesite of Paula Schultz in Barstow, California, at Huntington Beach Cemetery on Fuller and Guadalupe. My name is Don, and to my right we have our comic book guy, John. You and I have unfinished business. Baby, you ain't kidding. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hello, everybody. How you guys doing tonight? Groovy. Doing great. Yeah? Yeah. What about you? Oh, I can't complain. Tonight, we are talking about Kill Bill Volume 2. And which, this... is, which is not the fifth Quentin Tarantino movie. Well, yeah. I mean, it, no, I guess it's not. Well, he does not consider it his fifth movie. Yeah, because he wanted these two movies to be one movie. It's the fifth physical film he's directed. And written. And written. That's the other part. It has to be written and directed. Fair point. Fair point. So, But I understand what you're saying. And I'll just go ahead and say, okay. Kill Bill Volume 2 comes to us from our professor. And so I'll just go ahead and ask you the question, even though I'm pretty sure we all know the answer. Why Kill Bill Volume 2? Last week, we reviewed Kill Bill Volume 1, so it's a moral imperative we have to review Kill Bill Volume 2 right after that. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it now. Thank you, because these two films, as a story... Belong together. Belong together. You're absolutely right. Uh, they, They kind of can stand on their own, but only if you've seen both of them, if that makes any sense. But we'll get into that way later in the show. Well, so. I think it's also, if you watch the first one, you just have a craving to watch the second one. It it was actually everything I could do last week not to immediately go into the second one. Yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. Released on April 16th, 2004, Kill Bill Volume 2 was directed by Quentin Tarantino. It was written by Quentin Tarantino. And it stars Uma Thurman, David Carradine, Michael Madsen, Daryl Hannah, Gordon Liu, Michael Parks, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $30 million and it looks like it brought in $152 million. Which I was surprised that it brought in less than the previous movie, which brought in, I believe, $181 million. Part of the reason why is it's a longer film. And you're going to 
uh, you probably lost one showing a day where you could show Kill Bill Volume 1 six times, but you can only squeeze in five times for Volume 2. I, I concur with you. It has to do with the runtime because these movies did box office-wise very similarly. Bill Volume 1, it did $69 million and it was four weeks in the top ten. And Bill Volume 2... It does sixty-six million, and it's six weeks in the top ten. So they performed very similarly, you know, one year apart. Now we know the first of all, both movies are amazing. Both movies are fantastic, and we know the first movie got ignored by the Academy Awards. How many awards was it nominated for this time around? It was nominated for a ton of awards, but none of them for the Oscars. Did not get any Oscar nods at all. Well, there you go. So who wrote the score for this movie? You know what, John. I am shocked, A, that you brought that up and you didn't. But uh, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, Robert Rodriguez. And he didn't do all of the score, but he did score a lot of it. And he scored it for a dollar because the return favor was Quentin does Death Proof? Yeah, I think that sounds right. For a dollar. No, uh, Quentin directs something, does something for Robert for a dollar. Yes, that's exactly right. Right. And it's that kind of friendship that I fucking love. The arrangement was that he would uh, direct a segment of Sin City. That's what it was. Yes, 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 that's what it was. Do you know which segment it was? Do you remember? I don't know, but I could probably guess. Was it the one uh, where they're hunting in the city? Which one was it? It's uh, the car ride between Clive Owen and Benicio Del Toro. Okay. When he's dead and he's having a conversation with the... I can see that. I yeah. would like reviewing that movie. Sin City? Yeah. Listeners, the professor wants it. Give it to him. Put it in the helmet. So last week we talked about volume one and its cast and how awesome it was. And I know for me, I kept saying that, you know, Uma does a better job in volume two. Since we've already talked about Uma, just real quick, did you like her performance better in volume one or volume two there, professor? Volume one, I think, but... She does some, uh, I really appreciate her in Act 3, but Act. I'll get into that later. Right, right. You? For me, I would go with Volume 1 only because I'm such a big fan of Kung Fu, martial arts, and sword play. And I think she did a better job with the whole crazy 88 fight scene in Volume 1. Oh, interesting. But her acting is, is superb in both. Yeah. You? Um, I think she's stronger in 2 uh, because we... One is so much fun and it's very, it's well-written and it's an all-around great movie, right? But two, we're still in her arc. And when we meet up with her in two, all of one is behind her, right? And now she has a whole new set of problems. And the fact that she gets buried alive, she makes it out, and her hardest fight that she has throughout this entire fucking bloody affair is probably getting out of that fucking box, I would say. Right. And so to overcome that and then find out what she finds out. And in that moment, um, I think she's better in two. And in that moment, when she fi- uh, realizes she's a mom again, everything changes. And I, I just think it's very powerful. One of the things that I really loved in the first one was her reaction and just the acting style of Uma Thurman when she first woke up from her coma. You could tell from her facial expressions, from her screams, from everything, without even any dialogue, exactly what she's feeling, and it felt very real. 
you brought up the coffin scene. Same thing. You could see in her expression, just the fear, the the panic, the, you know, just the fact of being pissed off. You could see it all without any verbal cues at all. Yeah, yeah. She did an amazing job. Uh, David Carradine, this time around, we get to not only hear him, but we get to see him. What did you guys think of uh, David Carradine? Hands down, has to be his strongest role of his career. Yes, I would agree with that, but I don't know if he was one of my favorites in the movie. Um, I didn't ask you if he was your favorite. I asked you how he did. I, you know, in all honesty, I used to with my dad watch the the TV series Kung Fu sure. every week, and every time I looked at him in Kill Bill Volume Two, it's all I saw was Kane from Kung Fu, and even his acting and his movements all felt the same. So I kept feeling like I was just watching the same, you know. From that TV series. It was totally Kane. You, you, well, A, you were supposed to, yeah. so Quentin did it right. Um, but I agree with you, Professor. I think it is his strongest performance of his career because of the depth of the character and just the self-awareness of the character, right? He's very straightforward. Even when he's talking to BB about life and death, very straightforward, right? It doesn't mix words. And um, I thought he was the perfect choice to play Bill, and I thought he was great. I will say that, you know, his nickname in the movie is Snake Charmer. And I did find his character very charming. Yes, he fucking was. I mean, at times, even though you know he's a heartless bastard, you know, or you kind of want to like him. Yeah. Especially in that whole end scene when he's doing all this stuff. There's a part of you that thinks, oh, don't kill him. Nope, not once did I ever think that. Oh, okay. But I could see why you would. Michael Madsen, what'd you guys think? He was a delightfully slimy guy. He was. I thought he played Bud perfectly. Yeah. I loved him in every part that he was in this movie, especially when he's trying to convince Beatrix that she's going in the hole. She's going in the box in the hole. Yeah. And the whole thing about, you know, just the way he delivers his lines, I just, I thought it was great. My, uh, my favorite line of his is when he's about to shut the lid and he says, this is for breaking my brother's heart. Mm-hmm. That's a great line. Great line. Daryl Hannah coming back. We saw her briefly in one. She made us laugh. Oh, you don't owe her shit. This time, more of a bigger role. What'd you think? She is one ruthless woman. (laughs) That's one way of putting it. One thing I love about Tarantino is he brings in these like second comings of actors. You know, I mentioned it when we were talking about Pulp Fiction that I love the fact that John Travolta really got a big push from Pulp Fiction. And I really wanted to see that for Daryl Hannah from this movie, Kill Bill, that we would see a lot more Daryl Hannah. And I think we did. And I thought she did a a fantastic job of coming back and being in this role. I thought she had some of the best scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I think the reason why those work so well is because of the writing. She has beautiful dialogue to deliver. Right. Rounding out, we have Gordon Liu, who was actually Johnny Moe mm-hmm. from the first one the as General. Pime. That's right. And Michael Parks, who is Esteban Viejo in this and was Sheriff Earl McGraw. One of the things I had never noticed before until you pointed it out to me, Don, was that Michael Parks was in this movie twice. I never realized he was Esteban. So that was actually a pleasant surprise to know to look for that when I saw you know him as Esteban and realized that really is you know going from the sheriff to esteban is such a dramatic switch you know swing 
in acting that he really did a fantastic job. Oh, I, I, I loved him in that role. Originally, they wanted Ricardo Multiban. Ricardo Montalban. Montalban. But he couldn't do it. And But Michael Parks kept filling in for him and reading when they would rehearse and go over the script, this, that, and the other. And Quentin said, fuck, you're the man. And he was. You brought up uh, Pai Mei. What do you think of him? I loved Pai Mei. I thought he was uh, paying homage to all the old kung fu flicks. Mm-hmm. Um, part of me wishes that Quentin followed his gut and they were going to dub him yeah. like they did all the old kung fu movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, but I, this is this is a spe- this is a Shogun Western. Absolutely. Um, I understand why they didn't do it, but some part of me would like to see a cut where Pai Mei's dubbed. You bring up a great point, Professor, about being a shogun spaghetti type western uh i was reading an interview i don't remember who it was with but they said that the first movie was supposed to be a kung fu martial arts movie the second movie was supposed to be a western did you get that feeling from the two different movies fuck yeah very much it this one definitely felt like a western you know with the lawlessness that we have happening out at bud's trailer and the fact that we never have any type of a backup for uh, Beatrix. She is on her own, period, through and through, entirely through the movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, it definitely pays homage. And, and, and the music cues. Yes. Yeah. I say it definitely pays homage. Like the first movie definitely played homage to all you know the martial arts movies. This one pays homage to a lot of Westerns. So real quick, uh, we always talk about the dialogue in Quentin and how he writes his movies. Uh, which film do you think was written better? Volume one or volume two? You know, that is an interesting question. And I have to say, I was thinking about that before the pod. How do I feel about that? The dialogue that we get from L is definitely strong. And the the paradox that we have Beatrix in for the third act is definitely uh, thought provoking. But I am so I am so in love with the first movie and the the dialogue that I get in there too, it I, I think it's just a bit more endearing to me that I think that one is gonna nudge out over two. For me, the action in one is much better than two. That's not what I asked you. I know, but I'm getting to the second part of your question. <laughs> that wasn't uh, that wasn't any that wasn't in any part of my question. Okay. Which film is written better, one or two? The action is written better in one. The dialogue <laughs> is written much better in two. And I want to focus specifically on the Superman speech. For me, that was one of the things that just really sold me on the dialogue in two. So I would say two is written better. I would say that the second one definitely feels more like a Quentin Tarantino movie. In that alone, I think that volume two has a stronger script. And I think that the dialogue is better in two uh, for two reasons. First reason is Bill, right? We get more of Bill and the dialogue is written so smartly, especially when he's talking to his brother, Bud, whether he's talking to Beatrix, doesn't matter who he's talking to, right? It's just written so smartly that it really, uh, it really develops that character. And two, we get more just regular dialogue, everyday dialogue, the whole uh, titty bar scene. Did we really, really need that scene? Probably not, but it's written so well, I think, that it's fun. You know what I mean? In, Kill, in Volume 1, everything was had a purpose, and we were getting to our destination quickly. 
That's why it's paced the way it is and it moves the way it is. It is definitely the action portion of this story. And let's make no mistake, guys. This is a long fucking story. This is a 255-minute movie and when all said and done, right? But I think that volume two is just a little bit stronger. It's not as fun as the first one, but it has its fun moments, which, you know, I appreciate. I do agree with what you're talking about, how some of that in there is that everyday conversation, which Quentin is really good at being able to give that casualness of everyday talk. The whole titty bar bit that you're talking about, I, I agree with that. You know, him being chewed out by his boss, how does that propel the story forward in any way? How does that give any more context or texture to who Bud is? It doesn't. But on the other hand, it's kind of sort of fun to watch. And then he comes out and, uh, you know, the, the, the bathroom's flooded. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying about that. I, I can appreciate that point. Do you know what time it is? Time to get a watch? No, it's trivia time. In our continuing pursuit to crown a master of movie knowledge, I have prepared a series of questions related to today's movie. Please wait until I finish each question before throwing out your answer. What is the name of the wedding chapel the bride was getting married at? The El Paso Wedding Chapel. No, the two Twin Pines. Professor, do you I just remember it's a wedding chapel. You said it at the beginning of the show. Oh, no, you didn't say it. Uh, the answer, Two Pines. That's what I just said. Or did I say Twin Pines? You said Twin Pines. Twin and two. Pretty darn close. And, hey. and I only had wedding chapel. Thank you, Professor. Okay. Thank you. Oh, fuck. If I was a guest, you would have given me five points. What was the name the bride was living under at the time of her wedding? Uh, the, 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 the Arlene Plimpton. That would have been her married name. Oh, fucker. Arlene, Arlene Johnson. I'm going to give you Arlene. I'll give you a point for that. Arlene Machiavelli. Oh, that's right. It is Machiavelli. What instrument does Bill play? A flute. Very good, Professor. What does Bud shoot the bride with? A shotgun. Rock with salt. Rock salt. Rock salt. <laughs> shotgun, rock salt. I guess I could give you. Both. He does. He shoots her with a rock yeah. salt. I think we're both right. What is the name of the deadly martial art move that Pai Mei teaches the bride? The five-point exploding palm heart punch. It's something like that. The five-point palm exploding heart technique. Oh, well. You guys were close. I should fucking hope so. It's I have it written down twice <laughs> here. You can't find it. <laughs> what is the name of the bride's daughter? Phoebe. Fucker. Very good. Next question. What eye did Ellie Driver wear her eye patch on? Her right. Do you have an answer? Is her right? No, it was her blind eye. Which of Ellie's eyes still does the bride pluck out? Left. The one that was still there. Yeah, the other eye. What is the name of Esteban's gang? The Acuna Boys. Very good. And here is the final question. What movie did Esteban take Bill to when he was five years old? Play Misty for me? Uh, no, something with Lana Turner. It was called The Postman Rings oh, Always post, Rings postman Twice. Postman Always Rings Twice. Yes, The Postman Only Rings Twice, which came out in 1946, starring Lana Turner and John Garfield. So, tallying up the score, I believe, Don, you have won this one. So, that puts us officially at a tie.
A pregnant bride and her groom rehearsed their wedding. Bill, the bride's former lover, the father of her child, and the leader of the Deadly Viper assassination squad arrives unexpectedly and orders the Deadly Vipers to kill everyone at the wedding rehearsal. Bill shoots the bride in the head, but she survives and swears revenge. Four years later, the bride, having already assassinated Deadly Vipers Oren Ishii and Vernita Green, goes to the trailer of Bill's brother and the Deadly Viper Bud, planning to ambush him. Having been warned by Bill beforehand, he incapacitates her with a non-lethal shotgun blast of rock salt and sedates her. He calls Ellie Driver, another former Deadly Viper, and arranges to sell her the bride's unique sword for $1 million. He seals the bride inside a coffin and buries her alive. So this movie opens it's pretty a- much the opening from the first one. Yeah, we get a voiceover from Bill. Right. And it's kind of recapping us real quick. You know, Bill, it's your brain. The, the gun goes off. And then we cut to Uma. She gives us a fourth wall break. I, and I, I, I really like this bit. Just the way she delivers the lines and the way it's shot. It looks very film noir. Yeah, very. You know what I mean? And so from this moment, I know, okay, this isn't going to be anything like volume one. We're going to go on a different ride now. Yeah, and she says, you know, only one left, the last one. And when I get to where I'm going, I'm going to kill Bill, right? So she pretty much just ties everything up for us. And then volume two comes up on the screen. Right. What did you guys think of we're finally getting to see what actually happened at the Twin Pines Massacre? Chapter six. I was kind of thinking, yeah, about time, right? Let's let's Two, Two Pines. Let's find out what's going on. We open with, uh, it's the it's the wedding rehearsal. Right, and we have the bride narrating. Right, and she says there's a big misconception. Everyone said it was a wedding party, but really, it was just a wedding rehearsal. And so we're in black and white, so we know that this is a flashback. And we have the preacher, the bride and groom, and then the wedding party. And Rufus. And Rufus, played by? Samuel Jackson. Yeah. I, so, can, I can play Love Me Tender. That's such a great bit. And it's, again, it's just these little moments that Quentin knows how to write. Then we have the bride. She starts to wander outside and she hears a flute. And the reaction on her face is, oh, fuck. But it's very subtle. I thought it was kind of a mixture of, oh, fuck, and kind of like she was happy he was there at first. A little bit. A little bit. there. I, I saw a little smile try to peek through at first but then she realized what she had done and then it was oh fuck mm-hmm. so she walks out and we get uh bill and the bride and the first time we get to see bill's face yep and it's oversaturated yeah you know, the, the the lighting is oversaturated yeah and everybody that has seen the first one automatically knows how this ends because that's how the first one opens up and to see them being so demure and civil and uh, restrained you know that this ends in a bloody murder massacre and here they are and you are just waiting how is this going to unfold and they continue to be polite to each other yeah there's kind of a standoff at first who's gonna say the first thing and the bride asks you know how you found me and he says i'm the man and then they both stand and then quentin does this thing where he cuts to 
Bill's feet taking a step forward, the bride's feet taking a step forward, back up to the face, back to the feet, back. Mm-hmm. It's, it, we're, mm-hmm. we're taking the journey with them mm-hmm. one step at a time because even though everything has still gone down, you know that there's a history. There's a history with Bill and Beatrix. And we can sense that just with them walking toward each other. One thing I appreciated in their dialogue was, you know, again, kind of the, the playful dialogue that they have between the two of them and how the bride even, or Beatrix, it's, she's still the bride at this point, says to him, are you going to be nice? And he says, oh, I'm not nice, but I will try and behave myself. That's pretty much the gist of it, right? And so... um he kind of, in a way, gives her his blessing. Sort of. Sort of. At, At least, least that's think- how she takes it, and we as the audience, we can kind of take it, I guess, but like you were saying, Professor, we know what happens. And then there is a moment where Beatrix really thinks that she has it. She kisses him. She thanks him. They go inside and- Meet my dad. She, <laughs> she introduces him as her dad. That's the moment I thought, oh- that's what might have set him off. Now she's screwed. Oh, no. I think he was going to kill her the entire time. Yeah. That's why the well, other I think four so too, are but, outside. But yeah. you could see his demeanor completely changed when he when she introduces him as dad. Well, yeah, because he just introduced him as a fucking old man. I, I did like the bit where uh, the preacher is saying, well, since the bride has no one to sit on her side, the groom, they can share sides. And then Bill says, I want to come to the wedding. And she says, uh, you'll be the only one on my side. And my side's a bit lonely. And he says, your side's always been a bit lonely. And again, that goes back to their past and how well they know each other. What do you think of Tommy asking Bill if he'd like to give her away? Uh, poor Tommy. He had no idea, right? He, he was just doing what a natural guy who just met the father of his fiance would do. And again, that's the writing. Right. And this guy, whoever they got to play him, I'm sure I've seen him before. Uh, he did a really great job. And I, I love how Bill ends this. If he's the man you want, go stand by him. Yeah. And then she goes up and she stands by him. The camera backs up out of the chapel. And then we see the approach of the other four. The camera tilts. And here it comes. And as the camera is pulling out. And it goes up. The score it changes. That is a Robert Rodriguez score. It, it's Absolutely. Dreading, foreboding. It is so good. And and it's while the camera is pulling back. And then you know, okay, and here we are. And then all the gunfire. Well, I like, I, I think it was right before the gunfire starts, you hear the bride yell, Bill, no. Yeah. And then all this gunfire starts. And then you know, you don't have to see it. You know exactly what just happened. Well, and you I, also hear the preacher what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I do like how this the, the chapel scene ends because when the camera is up and then after the gunfire stops, we have the bell chime at the chapel and then it chimes a second time and then you hear a dog barking off in the distance and it's, it's just silence afterwards. Right. Just love that. Yep. And then we cut to, I guess we'll say present day. And, uh, and it's now in color and, and it's not, you're absolutely right. Um, Bill is talking to his brother, bud. And I thought this exchange was fun. 
And I think you asked the question or somebody asked the question last week, did Bill give all five members Hanzo swords? We got the answer this movie. I don't think he did. I think he only gave one to Bud. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. So so Bill comes down and is trying to warn Bud. And I love the dialogue a bit where he says, uh, were there really 88 of them? And just that whole mm-hmm. that whole exchange. I also like the moment how flabbergasted Bill is. You hawked your Hanzo? How, for, how, why would you do that? He it's said, priceless. It's priceless. And then Bud laughs. And well, not, not in El Paso. <laughs> got me 250. 250. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate is they revisit that line from the end of the first movie where he talks about, you know, uh, we deserve to die. And then what does he finish it off with? But if she comes looking... No, he says uh, that woman deserves her revenge. Maybe we deserve to die. But if she wants to... If she comes, she comes, and we'll see. Yeah. And, but but I think what you're talking about is if she wants to start some shit, she can come down to the bar and start the some shit, bar. and we can get into it. Because Bud's not running away from it. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and he refuses any help from Bill, which Bill is there to offered to try to get bud to accept she's coming and without my help she's going to kill you and he's like well let her come one of the interesting things that i don't know if i appreciate this about michael madsen uh was i guess uh quentin tarantino hated that cowboy hat did not like that he was wearing that cowboy hat and michael madsen insisted that he wears that cowboy hat did you did you read about that no but guess what? Neither did the guy Michael Madsen or Bud was working for. Because he yells at him, take off that fucking hat, well, right? That's exactly the reason why Tarantino put that line in the movie was because he want, Michael Madsen would not take off the hat while you know getting ready for filming and during filming. But he knew that he was such a good actor that if you put a line in that forced him to take the hat off, that he would have to follow suit. So that's why he put that line in the movie. And so we get to see Bud outside of being a Dudley Viper, and we get to see what life is like for Bud now. And he's a bouncer at a titty bar, and he's 20 minutes late. And and every- he's living out in the middle of nowhere in a shit trailer. Yep. You got to wonder what happened to him. Like, did he gamble all his money away? I mean, we, we don't need to know that, but just all the rest of them seem to do so well for themselves. And then here's Bud in a trailer. Well, who's to say that he's miserable? Maybe he wants to be like this. I don't know. He seems pretty excited to get that money. Well, who wouldn't? It's a million fucking dollars, dude. Come on. And it came knocking at his door. I think he was content with where he was in life. So do I. Which is why he doesn't want Bill's help. Exactly. Plunging a shitty toilet. He does it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Because as, you know, he gets to work and the the bosses give him a hard time because he's late and Bud's like, well, no, there's no one here. Who am I supposed to bounce? Which, you know, not really a great excuse. But anyways... Uh, as this guy is laying into Bud and treating him like shit and taking his days off the calendar, which I fucking loved. I love that bit. I'm thinking to myself, this guy is a deadly assassin. He could kill you without even blinking, right? But he doesn't. Bud takes the shit job because I think somewhere in there that makes up Bud, he might feel bad for everything that he's done. That's why I was wondering if that was maybe his... uh penance penance for what everything that he had done in the past well if you think about it 
what does he ask L about? The you know, two R's. Re- yeah. yeah. Well, I also thought the fact, the line that he had delivered earlier, which was, and we deserve to die. You're right. Maybe that he does feel something. So uh, he leaves work and he goes home and we find the bride hiding, waiting for him to come home. Underneath his trailer. Right. And she's wearing the black mask. And, you know, this is a good bit of building tension. And given how the first movie went, were you guys expecting what happened to happen? No, absolutely not. But on the other hand, the fact that it does happen, it kind of sort of needed to happen because she is not some, you know, super powered person. She has to have vulnerabilities and setbacks and stumbles as well. There's it's ridiculous to think that her character should be able to do everything that she does and, and not come out on top. She has to have setbacks too. Absolutely. I also felt that we just watched, you know, Bud take a bunch of shit from his boss. We saw him, you know, dealing with his brother, you know, and we haven't really seen much, but this shows why he's a deadly assassin. This shows that his he's got keen senses and he could plan ahead in a way that could trap the bride. Yes and no. Uh, I think some of it's laziness and he was just sitting on his rocking chair I mean, did you really think that he thought that the bride would come to the front fucking door? Oh, I think he figured it all out. In fact, he was just sitting there with the shotgun, pointed at the front door because he knew she was going to come in because that's just the style of way she does things. She's an honorable person. Eh, Maybe. Well, watching him come in, he gets to the trailer and he takes a long, hard look out into the darkness and something has got the hair on the back of his neck standing up. And then having the camera start out above the trailer and it slowly moves down the trailer after Bud goes inside. And as the camera descends, you know, we are just looking at the, the, the tattered door to the trailer. And then we get the slat between the floor and the door and we could see a little bit of his movement of his feet there. And I'm saying to myself that, he is doing something in there that is going to be revealed in just a few moments. The camera goes a little further down, and we are looking through the slats until finally we see Beatrix's eyes in the darkness. And now I understand completely why we had that long, slow pan down. It's because Bud is going to be doing something that is going to, sure enough, reveal itself as it did. And I... I was expecting that exactly. As soon as she got the gut, you know, the chutzpah up and she walked through the, and she came charging through the door. That was exactly what I expected to have happen. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't expect the rock salt. I didn't expect the shotgun blast. So she gets shot and Bud's all proud of himself. And, you know, as he disarms her and starts talking shit, he, uh, he calls Ellie. Well, he injects her with that needle too. Yeah. He sedates her. Stuff, yeah. yeah. And he calls Ellie and his plan is to bury the bride alive Mm -hmm. and hawk the sword. Right. And hawk the sword. What'd you guys think of this whole burying her alive bit? Terrifying. It was, wasn't it? It was also another call out. I don't remember the exact movie, bit. it was a call out to another movie that had exact similar scene. Yeah. Just the whole, and the aspect ratio changes when she's in the bed of the truck it's kind of at a four three, and then when he pulls her out, it goes to widescreen again, mm. and it's Tarantino uh, setting this up for what's going to happen. So the bride uh, kind of struggles, and then Bud gets the can of mace, 
And he says, you have a choice. Mm-hmm. I can either mace you blind, burn Fuck your it. eyes out. Loved it. And still bury you alive. Or I'll give you the flashlight. But either way, you're going to get buried alive tonight. I dug the shot where you have Be- Beatrix's eyeball right next to the mace nozzle. Yeah, that's a that's a close-up. Yeah, and, and having that, it is... It is, you know, prominently telling us that this is a serious danger that she is in and she's not getting out of. Right. I like the scene where Bud is talking to his little buddy who just dug the hole and he makes a comment along the lines of, you know, isn't that the prettiest whatever you've just seen, you know, you've ever seen? And the other guy's like, eh, I've seen better. I've seen better. So he puts her in a box. They seal it up. What did you guys think of the bit where the screen goes black? And all you hear is the dirt. Oh, that, I, I love that part. I do, but it's so claustrophobic and it's fucking terrifying. Well, I was trying to really specifically listen to the sound effects. And I think what the, we're first hearing is the box being dragged. And you hear the drag, drag, drag. And then you hear kind of a boom. And I think that's the box being either dropped or lowered into the hole. And then you start hearing the dirt hitting the top of the coffin. Right. So I love the fact that they thought about all of that, that they made sure to put all of those sound effects in and not just the dirt hitting the box. Sure. Well, also, it was really, really nice having all those close-up shots of the nails being hammered in and uh, and her eyes and, and followed up, like you said, Don, with the sound of the dirt. Oh, my gosh. So, so satisfying because it is so terrifying. That and the flashlight, where she first starts to try to use the flashlight to try to break the wood, and the flashlight keeps going out, and you're thinking, oh my god, did she just lose that flashlight? Yep. And then silence. And then it's black and white inside the casket. Years earlier, Phil tells the young bride of the legendary martial arts master Pai Mei and his five-point palm exploding heart technique a death blow that Pai Mei refuses to teach any student. Properly used, the attack is reputed to leave an opponent able to take only five steps before dying. Bill takes the bride to Pai Mei's temple for training. Pai Mei ridicules and torments her during her training, but she eventually gains his respect. In the present, the bride uses Pai Mei's techniques to escape from the coffin and claw her way to the surface. So here we are at chapter eight, the cruel tutelage of Pai Mei. What'd you guys think of this whole bit? I really enjoyed the, uh, the starkness that we get between the campfire to when we get to Pai Mei because the campfire, it's warm, it's friendly. You have the gentle flute playing. You have the warm colors of the fire. They're both smiling. And then when we get to Pai Mei's place, it is flat colors, and it is uh, uh, grainier looking in its image. Yeah, like it had just been raining, and it's yeah. dreary out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Bill comes walking down the steps going, yep, he'll, he'll take you as your student. <laughs> I love but his face is all fucked up. Yeah. And his shirt is half undone. Yeah. And then I love the reaction of uh, Beatrix when he says, uh, uh, Bill says, don't talk back, no sass, at least for the first year or so. And if you watch her face... It's like, do you just say fucking year? Well, I love, even, I think it was right before that she asked, when will I see you next? Yeah. And he and says, that all depends on you. You're yeah. going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. I like that we get a hint that what happened to L when he says something about don't give him like a dirty look or anything because he will pluck your eye out. 
Mm-hmm. So right there, you're like, oh, that's what happened to L. Right, right. And so she goes up, and they have a very brief conversation before he says, show me what you got. And he laughs and ridicules her the entire time. Mocks her. But she doesn't give up. And then, so finally, he says, um, I'll train you. Well, there was a key thing that happened during this scene where he basically fights with her to check out her skills and everything. That I don't know if I caught the first time that I watched this movie, which is when he puts her in that arm lock and basically says, this is my arm now. This is what, you know, I can do anything I want with this arm. It belongs to me, which is her right arm. And there's a thing that happens later on in the movie that plays into the fact that that is Pai Mei's arm. She uses the right arm to explode, what's his name's heart? No, she uses that same arm to get revenge on L when she plucks out the other eye. So that is her getting revenge uh, for L killing Pai Mei. It's like the 70s music that is playing when the challenge begins. Yes. Yeah, it's totally funky music. It's a, definitely a 70s homage to a 70s kung fu flick. You know what I mean? Well, Mix, that, mixing the two. That character of Pai Mei, I don't know if he's been named the same, but he's appeared in a lot of other kung fu movies in the past, the same exact look and everything. And in fact, there was a legend that really Pai Mei existed. I guess he had a technique called the white eyebrow technique. You ever heard of this whole story? Nope. Uh, supposedly, uh, you always hear about, you know, if you watch martial art movies, the forbidden technique or the forbidden martial arts. Well, that was the martial arts that Pai Mei in the past had created. But I, I guess at some point he turned on a bunch of monks and basically gave them up and they were all massacred. And because of that, all record of him was pretty much cut out and his techniques, his fighting style was, was uh, renamed the Forbidden Techniques. Yeah, there you go. So now we get to watch Pai Mei break through the board and he wants her to do the same, break through the board. With the arm he owns. Right, right. And so uh, we, go, we get a training montage. Uh, what did you guys think of... Um, in the first one, we had the black, we had the dark silhouettes over a blue background. This one, we have black silhouettes over a red background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really dug the shots of her doing her moves and then them doing it together. She looked very crisp and and very comfortable with mm-hmm. it. And I love the bit where she can't use the chopsticks, so she uses her fingers. And Piomay is like, "Nope, uh, if you're gonna be like a dog, I'm gonna treat you like a dog." And so it forces her to use it, and the look of, um, the look of proudness on Pai Mei's face when she picks it up and actually successfully uses the chopsticks, I thought was a nice little touch. I also thought that was kind of the moment that we're starting to see him either accept her or start slight. I mean, he does everything very slightly, and with that slight nod and everything. He's starting to accept her and have a little bit of pride in her. Right. I also I also dug the uh, the oversaturation of white light that we have in this scene because Pai Mei, he's practically glowing white. Right, right. There's another moment that I think is pivotal that happens just before the montage when we have Pai Mei telling her to break through the board and he says to her, what if your enemy is three inches in front of you? And it's like the coffin. Yeah. 
And, that, it, and it, that's what this whole fighting montage was about, is her breaking through the coffin. Right. It was her rechanneling her pymanus to get out of this fucking coffin. You know, we talk about, you know, every so often, oh, fuck moments or things that just kind of shock you. I think one that kind of every time gets me is when she is in the bed asleep, cold, you know, and she in her sleep thinks she's hitting the board and she hits the wall real quick. And it it looked like she really did it, right? Oh, because it looked like it hurt like hell. Yeah. I love that bit. Yeah. I love that bit. Muscle memory, though, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what's happening. Now we're back in the coffin. And the bride starts wiggling her legs free because it turns out she has a straight razor in her boot. Did you catch, there were a lot of references specifically in this movie to Reservoir Dogs. Did you catch that those are the boots Michael Madsen wore in Reservoir Dogs? No. No, and those are red boots. They apparently, according to Tarantino, he wore the same boots in Reservoir Dogs, and that was the same razor. Oh, I knew that was the same straight razor, Mm -hmm. but I didn't. Think about the boots because he was in all black, so yeah. I don't know why he'd wear red boots. There's and al- now I have to go back and fucking watch it. Now there's also a later. I don't know if it's later or if we saw it earlier, but there, you know, in Reservoir Dogs, there's a gas tank can or a gas can that he uses that he's going to pour on somebody. Yeah, uh, that can is actually in Bud's trailer. Right. So she gets her straight razor. She's able to uh, cut the rope, and then she starts hitting the box. And what I really appreciate about this scene is. The score that's going along with it, the score is very uplifting and rising, and that's what she's doing. And she fucking, she breaks through, she claws up through the dirt, and she pops out. One thing Such that, a satisfying moment. One thing that I really appreciate is a lot of these movies have our overpowered hero, you know, our uber hero, our, our indestructible hero. When she's punching that wood, you can see the blood from her knuckles on that wood which shows again a little bit of vulnerability and damn that must have hurt well she just got a chest full of fucking rock salt too and yeah. we got to i mean we saw that mm-hmm. and so we know she's not invincible mm-hmm. this leads to my favorite scene in the movie when she is walking to the we see the the late night cafe open <laughs> and the guy is sitting there in his empty cafe bored out of his mind and what does he do? He sees somebody stumbling herky-jerky across the street with a trail of dust coming off of her that you can see from the overhead uh, street lamp. And you can't make out the uh, that there's gravestones, but I'm thinking he probably knows that the graveyard is right there. I was just going to say, and one has to know the graveyard's right there, right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, to see that, it's like, what the f- fuck and then when she gets to the door and she opens it up and she looks even better under the light and to have her sit down and say can i have a glass of water please it's fucking brilliant i loved how respectful she was too just can i have a glass of water please yeah yeah or actually she says may i may i have a glass of water please because favorite moment because she is uh still polite chapter nine l and i arrives at Bud's trailer and kills him with the black mamba hidden within the money for the sword. She calls Bill and tells him that the bride has killed Bud and that she has killed the bride, using the bride's real name, Beatrix Kiddo. As Ellie exits the trailer, Beatrix ambushes her and they fight. 
Ellie, who was also taught by Pai Mei, taunts Beatrix by revealing that she killed Pai Mei by poisoning his favorite meal in retribution for him plucking out her eye after she called him a miserable old fool. Enraged, Beatrix plucks out Elle's remaining eye and leaves her screaming in the trailer with the Black Mamba. Yeah, I think uh, this is probably my second favorite sequence of this film. We kind of glossed over the whole reason why she came out here is because he, uh, Bud, is selling the Hanzo sword that he just got from Beatrix, and he's asking for real money. Right. And, and I think Bud, I, I think Bud kind of sort of, uh, shit, what the hell did I do? When Bill talks to him about, you hawked a Hanzo? Yeah. Yeah. And so after, uh, after the bride gets her drink of water, we cut to the daytime, and now it's, L driving two buds. You're right. He's, she's going to meet him at his trailer. And so this whole dialogue, I really enjoyed as well. The two R's. Yeah. And, uh, just the whole, just the way bud is making these iced margaritas and just the conversation that, uh, the two are having, I really enjoyed it. You know, did you guys see L betraying bud? Did you guys see that coming? No, I, I wasn't expecting that at all. I didn't see it coming either when I saw it. I honestly thought she was going to do something, and I didn't think it would be a snake in the money. I thought she was going to stab him in the back, that she was she was going to do something and blame it on the bride. I kind of saw it coming because you could tell, even from the phone call, she didn't like Bud. She didn't care about him at all, and he didn't really care much for her. And I felt like there was some way she was going to betray him and take that money. Yeah, but I also think that none of them liked each other. Yeah. So... That and they come, surprise me. And they come across as very different characters. Yes. L is in a, in a very nice, crisp-looking suit, wearing a, a very fancy-looking blouse. And what kind of car was she driving? A, grand, a Trans Am. Trans Am. And Bud is in a trashy trailer that is looks derelict, practically, and there's crap lying around everywhere, and he just throws stuff around the trailer. They are so opposite of each other when he's making her the drink that they sit and talk to for a few moments. Right. I like how she says, uh, can I take a look at the sword? And he says, is that, money, is that my money in the suitcase? And she goes, yes. And he says, well, it's your sword now. And the interesting thing that I enjoyed about the suitcase was that dingy, dreary-looking trailer is a stark contrast to that bright, almost luminous red suitcase. It is the center of our attention each time it is in frame because it stands out so brightly. Yeah. And you know what I was thinking during this scene? Because of you two fuckers. What color were the bands on the hundreds? Uh, They looked correct. Was that, did, did that look? Did that look like a proper million? You think? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, but I look at you, comic book guy, because you always ask him, and now every time there's fucking money on the fucking screen, I'm like, oh, what would the professor say? I did think it was interesting, and you know, looking at Bud as you mentioned, kind of living in this trailer with a bunch of, shit, and the fact that here is L who can easily in 24 hours put together a million dollars in a suitcase. I was so curious about that as well, that she was able to come up with a million bucks in cash. They are deadly assassins who got paid a vast amount of money. I'm sure she had a million under her bed. That's why I, I know you guys said that, you know, maybe he's just you know paying a, a penance for uh, everything that he's done, but I really think Bud was out of money. 
Oh, so do I. That's why he's living like that. Yeah. That's pretty clear. Yeah, that he's that he's got nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I was saying is that he chose that. Oh, he chose that. That's, okay. that's yeah. That he he doesn't have regrets with where he is now. Another cool thing that I appreciated and was very subtle, and it's right before the suitcase gets opened up. That L, she's sitting there working on that cigarette, and as the conversation's coming to a close, right before he opens up the suitcase, we get a close-up, tight shot of her crushing the cigarette, and I took that as the symbolism of her crushing Bud. That that this it, she's taking Bud down. It's about to go down, and watching it again, um, <clears throat> the snake popping out of the fucking suitcase shocked the shit out of me. I remember that, but watching it again now, I'm watching L's reaction. As Bud is taking out the money, if you watch, every time he's taking out a, a mound of money and nothing's happening, her face is like, uh, no, that's not it. Nope, that's not it. And then finally the snake does jump out. But uh, Daryl Hannah does a great job of the anticipation because she knows that snake is in there. Uh, but none of us at the time are supposed to know. So. And I know you, you obviously make fun of me. I mean, if anybody's listening to this podcast knows this for thinking outside of the movie. But I kept thinking during the scene is how the hell did she get the snake into the suitcase and cover it with the, with the money? She sedated it. You think so? Damn. Well, I, I just fucking go. solved it for you. Or that snake, people that handle snakes, they have tongs that are yeah. like three feet long, something like that. You just grab the snake with that. This, yeah, but how'd she get the money in there if she's holding the tongs? Well, she already has the money in there. And then what's going to happen is that you just shift things around in there. If there's enough room for this, for the cash to move around, then the snake should kind of sort of work its way around. If you just shuffle the suitcase around a little bit. Interesting. One thought I had is snakes like to burrow. So all she had to do was get the snake into the suitcase on top of the money. The snake would have probably burrowed in underneath the money. So that would explain why, you know, she was shocked every time or give a shock face every time, the money was taken out, didn't know where the snake might have burrowed. My other thought was, you know, just like we mentioned a second ago, in 24 hours, she was able to put together a million in cash. She was also able to get her hands on a black mamba snake. That's what I was more impressed with. So my thought is, she already had this black mamba. So maybe back of her head somewhere, she was planning on using this snake at some point. Yeah, okay. Just a thought. I, I kind of took, I mean... That all seemed like common sense to me when I watched it, right? Mm-hmm. Never once did I question how'd she get a million dollars, where the snake came from, because the way that uh, Tarantino paints the life of these people, I buy it. You know what I mean? Oren was top of the world. Vernita was a house. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? I just bought it. Yeah, you know? I, but I, I did too. It, and it did. It shocked me. It shocked me that uh, she kills Bud. But I do like uh, her monologue. How she, how she explains her little facts about the Black Mamba. I thought that was brilliant. And I love how she even pauses and says gargantuan. See, I really like that word, but never, but very rarely do you have a chance to use it in a sentence. And at, and then it cuts back to Bud and he's fucking writhing in pain. Coughing and Was choking. That the paralysis? And yeah. Every, he's fucking dying, man. Um, But I love how she ends it with him when she says, you know, Mine is regret that maybe the greatest warrior that I have ever met met her in at the hands of a bushwhacking scrub elky piece of shit like you. That woman deserved better. Such a good line. 
So uh, she's getting ready to leave, but is dead. She calls Bill. Bill, I got bad news for you. She killed your brother, Bud. I can be there in four hours. No, just go sit back and smoke some pot, and I I'll be right line. there. <laughs> How is she so nonchalant about that snake in the trailer someplace? Because it's her snake. She's not afraid of it. Clearly, she's yeah. not, because she just moves around with no worries. Yeah. So Ellie collects everything. She gets ready to leave, but here comes the bride. What do you guys think of this fight? So the way the fight opens up, I don't know if you guys ever watched Almost Live the Seattle version of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. They had a reoccurring skit on there. Billy Kwan. Yes. And, yes. And Billy Kwan, one of the little sticks that they had was his two feet flying at somebody as he's doing a, a, a flying kick. And you see the feet. And sometimes it'd always feet, be super extended. And, and sometimes the feet would go around the corner as well. Uh-huh. Thought the same thing when I see Beatrix's feet coming at L, She's knocked right back into the trailer. I love it. I love it. And Elle has the sword, right? But she can't unsheathe it because either the trailer's too tall, she's too close to the wall. This whole choreographed fight, I thought, is probably the best one-on-one fight in this saga. What do you think of when the bride grabbed the TV antenna and just whips her across the face a few times? Oh, so funny. So, so funny. good. But I mean, not as good as when the bride grabs the can of the, chew the spit oh, can and throws it in her face and she stops to say gross <laughs> and this i think was one of the first movies that it ever clicked with me when your head is being drowned in a toilet flush, flush the fucking toilet i never thought of that before but that was brilliant yeah that was really smart i love that the bride finds that bud had not hawked the sword. Oh, this is where everything changes, right? It's it's pretty good hand to hand going on this that and the other. They're fucking around, and um, somehow the bride gets thrown through a wall, and she's in Bud's bedroom, and she looks in his golf bag, and there is the Hanzo sword that he said he had pawned, mm-hmm. and uh, she picks it up, she opens it up, and I love the caption to Bud, the only man I'll ever love, mm-hmm. Bill. I think that was so poignant. And, but then, uh, it's the duel. Right before she finds his sword, we get this one shot where L is, uh, spotting the Hanzo sword in the, uh, and it, in the foreground, the sword takes up the entire bottom of the frame. Yes. And it's part of, you see a little bit of the sheath. You see some of the blade with, with, with the, the icon on it. And then you see part of the handle and then up above, it's L. She spots it, but then all of a sudden she gets pulled back by Beatrix. I love that little shot. And yes. Then right after that, then we get the then we get the duel. And I love the music that plays. Yes. And I love the way it's set up. And I love the dialogue. Hey, L. Something I always wanted to ask you, just between us girls. What did you say to Pai Mei to take out your eye? And so we get that scene and then we find out that l killed pai mei she poisoned his fish heads yep and then you can see the look of hate turn to even more hate rage rage in uh in the bride and ellie's like you know i poisoned that old fool and he was a dick and yes i killed your master uh, but, and, uh, she says, uh, 
you know, but you're holding a sword that in the immediate future is going to be my sword. And I love Uma's response. Bitch, you ain't got no future. <laughs> this moment is like a classic Western showdown. Yes. Right? Where they're both standing there ready to draw their guns, but they both have their swords ready to go. And they both look totally badass. Yes. Yes. Probably, like I said, my second favorite sequence of this entire film. So they're fighting and um, they get up almost face to face. Real up close and personal. And the bride plucks Ellie's other eye out. I thought that was such a poetic and perfect ending to Elle's character. And the, and the fact that uh, Beatrix just walks out. You know what I mean? She picks up her sword. Elle's not going to be any more trouble. And she walks out. I don't even know if the bride knows there's a snake in there. But when the bride walks by, you see the snake recoil like it's afraid of her. I like to think that she kind of saw everything through the window. She was probably up on the roof ready to swing in with that kick. Yeah, and I like to think that you listen to me from time to time, but that never happens, does it? No. Okay. So, yeah, she walks out. One thing that uh, I appreciated about the scene was Daryl Hannah's reaction when she got her eye plucked out, that she just went crazy and started flipping around. And I guess that's not really what was supposed to happen. She was supposed to obviously be hurt, but she wanted to make Tarantino laugh. So she overreacted and flipped around and went just completely this crazy tantrum and everything. And Tarantino loved it and kept it in the movie. Well, of course. It was fucking brilliant. I also read that during that tantrum, she actually got herself pretty well beat up on all the broken glass and everything else in that area. And... Beatrix, she had no idea that she was walking past a suitcase full of money. No. And I'm not sure if she would care. No. I don't necessarily you know what I, mean? I don't necessarily think so either. I, yeah. I think she's kind of like the whole John Wick thing where she's, I mean, she's obviously, she's gotten a nice car. She's got all these outfits. She's able to fly, you know, different places. She's got her own money stash somewhere. Oh, I think she had to have yeah. been part of the Deadly Viper Assassin's Creed. Now, now here's the big question. Uh, Tarantino, had, we talked about this last movie, Tarantino has hinted that he may do a Kill Bill 3. He wanted to wait 10 years from Kill Bill 2, at least 10 years from Kill Bill 2, to doing a Kill Bill 3. Uh, do you think if he does one, since uh, the bride left L alive, will we see L again? Who knows? That's what the question mark is at the very end. Is it? Yeah. Uh, now, I have heard uh, rumors that uh, Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah do not get along at all. In fact, they almost loathe each other. Well, for Kill Bill 1, when uh, the actress that played Gogo uh, and Uma Thurman won best fight scene, they showed up on stage together to, ta- to accept the award. When Kill Bill 2 came out and they won, you know, Uma Thurman and Daryl Hannah won the award for best fight scene, Daryl Hannah went up on stage. Uma Thurman was nowhere to be found. Yeah. Last chapter, face to face. In Acuna, Mexico, Beatrix meets a retired pimp, Esteban Viejo, who helps her find Bill. She tracks him to a hotel and discovers that their daughter, Bibi, is still alive, now four years old. Beatrix spends the evening with them, 
After she puts BB to bed, Bill shoots Beatrix with a dart containing truth serum and, and interrogates her. She explains that she left the deadly vipers when she discovered she was pregnant to give BB a better life. Bill explains that he assumed she was dead. He ordered her assassination when he discovered she was alive and engaged to a jerk he assumed was the father of the child. The two begin to fight, but Beatrix traps Bill's sword in the sheath and strikes him with the five-point palm-exploding heart technique. Surprised that Paimé taught her the attack, Bill reconciles with her, then falls dead as he walks away. Beatrix leaves with BB to start a new life. Roll credits. I love the tune that starts this chapter off. Uh, this is actually the car scene where she crashed. Oh, yeah, the Carmen Ghia. Yeah. Yeah, she's humming along to it. Yeah. And then she makes it to the, the bar. I like this bit because, A, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. Uma Thurman looks great in this scene. Yeah, she, she does. She just looks so beautiful and powerful, and and I dig that. And I like the bit when, you know, the old pimp dude is like... um. You know, you would have been one of my girls, this, that, and the other. You would have been and my top girl. That's right. And she says, well, I'm flattered. And he says, well, you better goddamn, well, better be. I have to wonder, a lot of these fight scenes, how much time really took place, you know, was uh, how much time had passed between each of these fight scenes because she got pretty well beat up by Elle and now her face is completely recovered. So I'm thinking this this whole movie must have gone on for months. Oh, absolutely. This didn't happen a week. Mm-mm. Not by any stretch of the imagination. She has a new haircut. She has a new car because her pussy wagon died on her. Do you know why her pussy wagon died on her? Because Quentin Tarantino took it home? No. There was another deleted scene that I don't know if we'll ever get to see, but there was like supposed to be this side chapter called Yuki's Revenge. Oh, yeah, yeah, Have you heard about this whole thing? Yeah, it's uh, Gogo's twin sister. Yeah, Gogo's twin sister was supposed to try to, basically going to seek out the bride to get revenge for her sister, uh, and I guess uh, Yuki destroys the pussy wagon. So that's why we don't have the pussy wagon anymore. I still think he just likes to say pussy. Probably. Probably. What I like about this bit also is just how she's just so matter-of-fact, right? She just wants to know where Bill is. And And, and he knows who she is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You must be Beatrix. I can see the attraction. Uh, Well, one of the things he talks about, what do you think of that story of Bill sucking his thumb? Because he talks about how Bill's always been in the blondes. And Bill used to suck his thumb when watching uh, Lana, was it Lana Lang? Lana. Lana Lang is from Superman. Yeah. Lana, whatever her name, Lana Turner. Lana Turner. Lana Turner on the movie. Get it, buddy. What do you think of that whole story? I it is okay. Was I supposed to think something of it? Well, you know that was based on a real story. Yes, Quentin, Quentin's story. Yeah, based. No, it was actually Kurt Russell. Oh, that's you're right. I'm had, sorry. Had told Tarantino that story of how yep. every time he saw it when he was a, a young child, every time he saw Marilyn Monroe up on the big screen, he would suck his thumb. Yeah. And so now we're at the villa, and the bride parks. She walks in. She gets her gun out. She kicks the door open. No, she sn- she quietly opens the door. The door opens, and surprise! She gets shot. By her daughter. What did you guys think of this whole bit? Curveball. 
Oh, yeah. I figured the daughter had to come in at some point. Sure. So I thought, okay, well, we're going to probably see her come in. And I thought she was actually going to point a gun or something at her daughter and then get stopped. I didn't expect this whole daddy-daughter moment of, mommy, you've been shot. You know what you're supposed to do. Oh, I thought it. And I, the look on Uma's face when she sees that BB's alive. Instant recognition. And she knows that she can't kill bill at this exact second she's so overwhelmed but yet i think that she's overwhelmed with love and i mean that's her daughter that she's never seen before and then to be asked to play along with this game even though it's not really play time she's ready to kill bill it's kill time oh so good and it's 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 almost crushing it's almost crushing. I felt like you can, you know, you talked about how you can kind of read her expression. I felt like at one moment, you're right. She sees BB and she's instantly in love and thinking, you know, there's my child. You know, I thought I lost everything. There she is. But then it also recognizes in her that Bill stole four years of her life with BB. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Bill's a dead man anyway. Yeah. So, so. she's right back to where she was. Yeah. Well, I don't think she left. But, no. but the gentleness that we see from Bill at this time, you know, when, uh, BB, lay down, lay down. Yeah. And then after after she shoots mommy, don't die. I was playing. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get the little dinner sequence where dad's making sandwiches. And he explains to Beatrix, you know, that BB has just learned about life and death. Uh, I thought this was some really good writing. The goldfish story. Yep. And... Which is interesting that a little child would do something like that. I almost thought, is this a future serial killer? Look who her father is, guys. It's yeah. not that far out of the norm. I kind of thought that, too. you got to go along with it. The point is, she learned. So, you know, there's that. A silver lining. And I love this bit where uh, they go upstairs to put BB to bed and... Uh, Fucking Bill just straight up tells her, more or less... I shot mommy. I I was very, very bad. I, I was very bad. Were you a bad daddy? <laughs> Shut up, John. Get that look off your face. Um, and I like how he explains that, you know, he shot her and did, did she die? No, she went to sleep. Yeah. And then, you know, she's, uh, BB's like, does it hurt? And uh, Beatrix is like, no, I'm all better. I'm wide awake. I'm here now. And I love how uh, Bill... Bill says, uh, would you like mommy to watch a video with you before sleepy time? I love the fact that BB picks Shogun Assassins. Again, that just shows you what kind of world and what kind of life she's growing up in. You mm-hmm. know, And you know the bride's seen it because, you know, she's like, uh, Bill's like, no, it's too long. And Uma's like, no, it's not. Because she's going to, tr- I mean, she's lost all this time. Yeah, she right? wants more time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so they watch the movie, they fall asleep, and now it's time for the face-off. One thing I thought was interesting is she takes her necklace off. It looks like just like a handmade necklace and lays it down next to BB. I was wondering if there was something maybe that was taken out of the movie that kind of showed the significance of that necklace or was she just, was the fact that she was just giving something to BB? I took it as there is a slim to none chance that the bride won't be coming back for whatever reason. Bill gets the best of her, right? She wanted to give that to her knowing that they had met and she left this with her. That's how I took it. Part of me thought from all of the dialogue that we get from the beginning all the way to the end, 
that Bill wasn't planning on living through this, that Bill knew his time was over. And so he was just kind of setting everything up to basically say, daddy did a bad thing and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, kind of setting everything up. Interesting. I never, I never took it that way. Mm. I just took that the, the necklace is left behind because for whatever reason, it's a real possibility that these two, that these two women, these two girls aren't going to see each other. It's a very real possibility. Right. And that's how I took it. And so she goes downstairs and they kind of have this moment and then uh, talk about showdown options, if you will. A battle in moonlight on the beach. And- so, yeah. And and, and she kind of laughs and you there's a moment of levity, but she goes for the sword and then he shoots, stops her. And he says, you know, before we get to the end of this bloody saga, I have a couple of questions. And I love the bit about how he says... When it comes to you, I can't trust what you say. And when it comes to me, I don't believe that you would speak the truth or, or that whole bit, right? Mm-hmm. So what does he do? He shoots her with truth serum. And I think the funniest bit of this is when he says, um, yeah, it'll it'll course through your veins, this, that, and the other, but then you'll get a rush of euphoria. Do you feel it? And he just, no. he, she just asks her, right? And I liked her reaction to getting shot, so which, good. Is, which is the whole thing of, what the fuck is that? Oh, it was so good. And he's good. like, no, yeah. leave it in. Or I put one right in your cheek. And I also appreciated right afterwards when Bill's like, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, he's disappointed that there was no euphoria. Mm. Yeah, so good. A concoction he made himself, he calls the undisputed truth. And this leads us to what Superman. I think to what I think is one of the best written dialogues in any movie in any time. Really? Yeah, I love this di- I love this monologue. If I were an actor, I would probably want to memorize this monologue. I'm shocked I don't... I mean, I kind of have it memorized, but he compares or he uses the analogy of superheroes and their alter egos to equate it to uh, Mrs. Martha Plimpton and Beatrix Kiddo. And I think it's such a good correlation. As a comic book guy, the only thing he gets wrong is it's the same thing with Wonder Woman. And this bit of dialogue, too, is where Bill finds out what's happened and Beatrix explains to him why she left. And uh, she tells him, you know, uh, remember that last assignment you sent me on? I got sick. I took a pregnancy test. I was pregnant. And I like the cutback. Where it shows us, and then that Lisa Wong has sent an assassin, Karen, to kill the bride. And one of my favorite lines always is, "Are you good with that shotgun?" Not that I have to be at this range, but I'm a fucking surgeon with this shotgun. I fucking love that line. I don't know why. I don't know. I, one of the things I really liked about that scene was the very last bit of that scene with uh, Karen's face through the hole in the door. Congratulations! Which, congratulations! And runs off. Yeah, that's good. Framed perfectly. Yep, yep. And it's practical, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, they had to map that out. And I know you talk about the different dialogue you like, but I really thought the interaction very believable between Bill and the bride when he basically says, you know, you didn't have a right to take the baby away from me. And she's like, well, if, you know, I know what would happen if she was raised in your world. Yeah, no, that was all great dialogue. Yeah. And I think it was really hammered home when she says, I had a choice to make, and I chose her. And that's what she did, you know. Came back and bit her in the ass, but, you know, four and a half years later, 
Maybe it's time to set things right. And so now it comes time to the final fight. And so let's recap. Okay. Just like Quentin does. She took on O-Ren and 88 of her people. She fought Vernita Green in her kitchen and her living room. Uh, she fought L in a trailer. trailer. And now she's going to fight Bill in a chair. I think the different ways that Tarantino used all of these fights to not make them the same was absolutely brilliant. This fight, I thought, was beautiful. It was very well choreographed. And the fact that it ends with the five-point exploding heart technique, I think is just icing on the cake. Do you know the original plan for that last fight scene? What was that? The original plan was supposed to have them fight on the beach in the moonlight. But they had already, I guess, gone so far over budget that they had to make some cuts. And that was a scene that got cut. And so that's why Tarantino put it in the dialogue that Bill had for his suggestion of how they should fight. Oh, I thought that would have been a beautiful fight as well. But I think the way that it goes down was the way it needed to go down. You know what I mean? Um, So great move by Tarantino to restrict it to them fighting in a chair virtually. Right. I don't know. There, there was just something, and I understand exactly what you're saying about why you love this scene. There was something for me that was so much buildup to getting to Bill, who was like the final boss in a video game. And it was just kind of a downer the way they just ended so quickly. I expected it to be more like this to be the greatest of all the fights. And I expected the fight on the beach at midnight, you know, in moonlight, just something like that. But. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from. At some point, as the audience, we're starting to get fatigued, too. You know, this has been a very long, bloody trail. So I appreciated the length of this fight. I appreciated how it went down. And I appreciate that after she does it, he looks at her and he says, I can't believe he taught you that. And she was like, and he says, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, I don't know. I'm a bad person. And he's like, no, you're not a bad person. You're my favorite person. Remember when we wrote the group? Mm-hmm. there's a line in there that I lifted from volume two. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's when the little kid is saying, you're my favorite person. Mm. I lifted that from Kill Bill. And so, yeah, he looks at her and he says, how do I look? And she says, you look, you look ready. ready. Mm-hmm. And I think it's six steps. Did you count? I looked, It's like five and a half, right? I, I counted it this time around and I counted six, but the fanboys on the internet says it was eight. But yeah, I counted six. All right, you um you are now banned from the internet. The internet because that's thirty seconds I can't get back. So thanks, bud. And then we uh, cut to mommy and BB leaving together, and they take off. And then I love the next title card. Next morning, and BB's watching cartoons, which was very rem- reminiscent to Pulp Fiction when young Butch is watching cartoons. I had the same feel and same vibe, Mm -hmm. but the bride is in the bathroom processing and just letting it all out. Yeah. And totally get that. And Uma does such a great job selling that. You know, I felt it for her. Yes. Everything, everything that she has been doing for these past couple of months, years, whatever it is, is now over and she got her life back. And she had no idea that she was going to be rewarded with her daughter. Right. She was just on a bloody rampage for revenge. And it all works out. And the song that's playing at the end of this film is probably my favorite song of the soundtrack. Uh, Again, it's a Robert Rodriguez. And um, 
It says something like, The lioness has rejoined her cub, and all is right in the jungle. And then we get six minutes of credits of telling us basically the same thing that it just told us. Mm-hmm. But, you, but at this point, I didn't care. Did you notice that during the credits, her dri- the driving, where she's just driving along? Yeah. Did you watch that part of it? What do you mean? If you watch the credits for a little while, it eventually goes to uh, credits with her just driving. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Well, it's yeah. us watching her face and her hair softly blowing. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it says written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. After that leaves, then she gives a little wink to us. Right. And that ends Kill Bill Volume 2. I have to say it was pretty satisfying to see the bride complete her journey. Almost as satisfying as another epic journey. What journey are you talking about, John? Oh, stop, Professor, stop. And now it's time for John's... Moment. This is the point in any of our podcasts where I take whatever movie we're currently reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. So I know we did this for the last movie, and a lot of this is going to be pretty much the same for this movie. In fact, Frodo, again, is the bride, a.k.a. Beatrix Kiddo, in Volume 2. The movie centers around her journey of justice, revenge, and redemption, and it continues from Volume 1 to Volume 2. For Sam, the closest I could come up with is Bibi, Kiddo's daughter. Up until the point where they are reunited, when she finds Bibi, she's given a new sense of purpose and revitalization. It's Bibi that gives her the push she needs to complete her journey. Gandalf is Pai Mei. Like Gandalf, Pai Mei is a wise and powerful mentor figure who helps guide and train the bride in her quest. Both are mysterious and enigmatic characters with a depth of knowledge and experience that is beyond that of most mortals. Also, like Gandalf, Pai Mei is not easily swayed by emotions or personal attachments and will make the decisions for the greater good. The greater good. Taking some of your feedback, I think it was Don who suggested this last week, I put some thought into creating a deadly viper assassin squad dark fellowship. And looking at that, my first thought was Oren Ishii, a.k.a. Cottonmouth, would be Legolas. Legolas. Would be Legolas. In volume one, she is shown to be keen of sense fast refluxes, and good with projectile weapons. Vernita Green, a.k.a. Copperhead, is Theoden. While Theoden wasn't originally part of the Fellowship, I feel he's the best analogy for Vernita. Since leaving the Divas, she's established her own home kingdom. She's also not readily drawn back into the fight as she's left that all behind her in the past. It takes the bride's coaxing to get her back into the fight. Bud a.k.a. Sidewinder, would be Gimli. Like Gimli, he requires extra encouragement to proceed on the path specified for him. He is also fairly gruff like Gimli. L. Driver, a.k.a. California Mountain Snake, would be Boromir. Like Boromir, she's loyal to the boss and to the mission, but she also has her own secret motives and is corrupted by the ring. For Sauron, the best analogy would be Bill, a.k.a. Snake Charmer himself. While Bill doesn't have the same level of power and ambition as Sauron, 
He is menacing and a mysterious figure who controls a network of deadly assassins. Like Sauron, Bill's actions drive much of the plot of the movie. So what is the precious? What is the one ring? In Kill Bill Volume 1, I said the ring was the Hanzo sword. In Volume 2, it is also the Hanzo sword, but more of a different reason. In this movie, it's a sought-after item, just like the ring. It's also a symbol of power and status among the characters in the movie and is highly coveted by many of the assassins. Just as the ring corrupts those who possess it, the sword has a corrupting influence on those who seek it. Bud got killed trying to sell it. Elle lost her eye while trying to buy it. And it would never have been made if not for the influence of Bill, who was our Sauron. And there you have it, my comparison between Kill Bill Volume 2 and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. What you got there, tough guy? Well, we have our usual suspects. I like the tack that John took about the Dark Fellowship. I think that that plays more strongly. I think that I'm going to go C+. C+. I, too, like the Dark Fellowship, although I think maybe a missed opportunity in... I'm just throwing this out there, but Bill's the precious. And it's not until the bride casts him out that she doesn't know freedom or until, you know what I'm saying. Anyways, I think that there could be a case for Bill to be the precious as well. I can see that. But it's not my gig. It's yours. And what'd you give him? I, C plus. I'm going to concur and I'm going to give you a B minus. And that was John's. moment all right what do you guys think you guys ready to rate this flick i'm ready to rate this flick john you want to rate this flick i'll take a stab at it professor how do we do our ratings we do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold anytime somebody says hey you want to watch kill bill volume two fuck yeah i do a one fuck movie is a movie where you've seen it and you're kind of sort of one and done with it you really don't have any desire to ever see it again and what's a zero a zero fuck movie is Oh, for shit's sake. What the hell? Why did you make me watch that? Somebody owes me two hours and 17 minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right, which one of you deadly viper assassins would like to go first? I went last last time. Would you like me to go first? If you want to go first. What would you like me to? What I like and what happens very rarely are the same thing. So okay, I'll go first. There you go. So keeping with tradition, we accidentally skipped last week. Uh, what is, Don, is your prediction for my rating this week? You gave volume one a perfect five, right? You think it's cinematic gold. Mm -hmm. And you have repeatedly said that you think one is better than two. So I think with the pie mayness and just the way the story flushed out, I think you are going to give it a 4.75 fucks. And that's your final answer? 4.75 fucks is my final answer. Okay, let's see. There once was a film called Kill Bill that left audiences thrilled and fulfilled. With Uma Thurman as the star and Tarantino's style somewhat bizarre, the ending was epic and skilled. Tarantino's style was on full display in every scene, in every way. The dialogue was sharp. The action was art. The cinemagraphic feast all that day. The action was truly sublime. As each character hit that sweet line. Uma as the star, with her swordplay by far, 
a performance that was truly divine. Overall, this movie is deluxe, a masterpiece of action that doesn't suck. Though it's not quite as perfect, it's still worth respect with a rating I give it 4.75 fucks. Bang, baby. Pretty good at that, huh? You're dialed in. Yeah. 4.75 fucks from the comic book guy. You or me there, Johansson. I'm going to go. Baby, you ain't kidding. Kill Bill Volume 2 is a very good watch. Watching it again the other night, I have slightly different feelings for it because what I recall from watching it the first time around was the uh, the cadence, the tempo of the movie is different from the first. The first is light and snappy and fun, and the second is uh, of a slower pace, and there's a lot more dialogue that happens in that. The dialogue that happens in the third act, I feel, is what I previously had feelings where the movie isn't quite as good as the first one, just because the, the, the tempo is a lot slower and it's very well done with its dialogue. Watching it this time around, I appreciated that dialogue in the third act a whole lot more. The first act, I thought, was very good. I enjoyed the whole bit with Paimei to get her out of the coffin and having her with her daughter at the end was, for whatever reason, a lot more satisfying this time around. And I think that this movie is a classic movie as well. It is an excellent movie. Quentin knows what he's doing. And I really think that the movie is excellent. For whatever reason, I enjoyed the music in Kill Bill Volume 1 a little bit more than Volume 2. Different style of music, and it's a different style of movie as well as I discussed earlier. But in the end, The Bride, she's lovable as ever, and she is so stylish in this movie. And this movie just, it reeks with style. I totally love Bill as this this. He is such a good bad guy in this movie. And his slow and deliberate pace reminds me specifically, as was pointed out earlier, Kane from the television series of Kung Fu. And his slow and deliberate uh, dialogue makes me wonder, what is he going to say next? What is he going to do next? Because his character is so rich in that fashion. But ultimately, in the end, when I look at one versus two... I think I do like one a little bit better, and I was tormented. Do I give it the same score? And ultimately, in the end, the one that I always want to watch is one. And so ultimately, I think that I'm going to give the movie 4.75 fucks. This is the same score that I gave Volume 1, but at the same time, I still like Volume 1 a little bit better. Yeah, I totally get that. Uh, 4.75 fucks from The Professor 4.75 4.75 fucks from the comic book guy. Uh, I guess it's my turn. Professor, I completely understand what you're saying about, uh, you know, enjoying volume one a little bit more than volume two, but volume two is an excellent movie. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think volume two is much more of a Tarantino movie, just in its pacing and the way uh, it moves. I think. Volume 2 has better dialogue than Volume 1. I think that Volume 2's cast, 
I mean, essentially it's the first one, but the other characters that we get introduced to uh, hold their weight and uh, it really supports the movie. I love the soundtrack of volume two. I might like it a hair more than volume one, mainly because of Robert Rodriguez and what he does with it and just the, the tunes that Quentin decides to use. The musical cues and the needle drops throughout volume two are great. Um, is volume two cinematic gold? That's what I have to ask myself. And though I like it better than volume one, I don't think volume two is cinematic gold because without volume one, volume two really doesn't work. And the problem with Kill Bill, and not that it's a problem, but the thing with Kill Bill is as a whole story, as one through line throughout the whole thing, I think the story is fantastic. It's a story of revenge. It has heart. It has jokes. It, it's just a lot of fun, but it's still really long. And so Kill Bill is almost like a broken movie. You have your first volume, which is fantastic, but can it really stand on its own? No, it ends with a cliffhanger. You would always want to know what happens with the baby, right? Can volume two stand on its own? No, not really, because it starts with chapter six. You know what I mean? Sure, we get told what's going on, but you don't you don't find out what happens to Oren. You don't find out what happens to um, Vanita Green. You don't know why it's such a big deal that she has a Hanzo sword, right? It doesn't work. One doesn't work without the other. And I think that with what we're doing and how we're doing it, um, I can't award Volume 2 Cinematic Gold, even though I do think it's slightly better than Volume 1. So I'm going to do like you, Professor. I'm giving Volume 2 4.75 fucks. The same score I gave Volume 1. So with 4.75 fucks from all three of us, that gives Kill Bill Volume 2 an average of, you guessed it, 4.75 fucks which now puts it in the three spot tied with Die Hard, The Shawshank Redemption, and Elf. It is slightly better than Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, Black Panther, and slightly worse than Kill Bill Volume 1. That sounds a little weird. The, the, the better than, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Goodfellas? What? Pulp Fiction? What? Yeah, crazy, huh? I would say I like it better than Pulp Fiction. Kill Bill? Yeah. Uh, it's up there for me. I think I think it depends on my mood on the day. All right. That is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out our website. And speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? Well, as always, they can find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post all of our show notes, all of our podcasts, we actually have quizzes made up of the trivia that we share on the show, as well as anything else we can feel like putting there. In fact, I just put up a blog post all about Tarantino's foot fetish. You can also find us at all of the social media sites and anywhere that hosts a podcast. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for always listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank anyone else who listens and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening... We'll keep recording. For three guys in a flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. The lioness has rejoined her cub, and all is right in the jungle.
we're not Friday off. So we're not. Ta- we're not talking about later. We're talking about right now. His priority is right now. Yeah, but I took Friday off. I and good for you, my man. I am happy for you. I really am. You deserve a day off. I know what you do at work. And if anyone deserves a fucking day off, it's fucking you. I think it's you and I have unfinished business. I think it's you and I have unfinished business, too. Would you mind doing that one again? (laughs) Would it fucking matter if I minded? You and I have unfinished business. Yeah. Last week, we... we From the top. So do you know what time it is? Time to get a watch? Time... God damn it, I was going to say something, but you fucked me up. Do it again. Just do that. Do you know what time it is? Time to get a watch? It's trivia time. I thought you were going to say something. No, I didn't have anything to say. That's why I said do it again. Oh, my God. All right, one more time. And action. Ellie, who was also... Ella, L, who... I've been calling her Ellie this whole fucking time. So Sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but we don't have emotions. That's not true, Professor and I do. We cry at Lethal Weapon 2 every single time. Am I right, Professor? Kind of, yeah. Okay. And you have to. Right? Okay. There you go. Well, that moment was brought to you by Don's daughter. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for that one, kid. That's another minute and a half I'm never going to get back. But I think you would much rather be watching Stick, Stick, Stab as opposed to Talk, Talk, Talk. Yeah, I'm easy. Yeah, that's what they say. Just stick, stick, stab. Oh, you want to play tummy sticks? Is that what you just said? What's tummy sticks? <laughs> don't act like you don't know. All right, fuck off. Good night. Niña hermosa.